Well, I invite you to open your Bibles now to Hebrews chapter 4, and I'm going to read with you verses 1 to 11, probably 11 of the most complicated verses in the Bible. <laughs> and uh, I say that just so that as you're reading and you're scratching your head, how in the world does this hang together? You won't think that I didn't realize that. But Hebrews is tough. It's a tough book, and it's in the Bible, which means among other things, that God intends for Christianity to carry in its wake literacy. In fact, I've thought that Christianity in its mission is fundamentally literacy work, teaching people how to read God's Word for themselves so they're not dependent on preachers and missionaries and Sunday school teachers. Well, this is tough. And we'll do the best we can with it. Maybe you're sharper than I am and it will just all fall together very plainly for you. But we'll tackle it and deal with as much as we can pack into a few minutes here. Hebrews 4, 1 to 11. Therefore, let us fear. Now I'm going to pause right there because I know about 300 of you have the NIV in your lap, which doesn't say fear. It says, be careful to, or something like that. And it's one of those irritating paraphrases that I have to deal with as a pastor, knowing that my people have all kinds of versions out there. When the literal words are very simple and very straightforward, therefore, let us fear. So you NIV holders just have to adjust to what I tell you this means, and then if you don't believe me, go to the RSV, go to the NASB, go to the King James Version, who all take it like it is. Therefore, let us fear, lest while a promised remains of entering his rest, any one of you should seem to have come short of it, the rest. For indeed, we have had good news preached to us, just as they also. But the word they heard did not profit them because it was not united by faith in those who heard. For we who have believed enter into that rest. Just as he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Now that's an odd sequence of thought there, but it means, I believe, he has told unbelievers they will not enter my rest. Therefore, we know that those who believe enter his rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. Speaking of God's rest when he finished creation. For he has thus said somewhere concerning the seventh day. And God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again, in this passage, namely Psalm 95, which he quoted a chapter earlier. In this passage, they shall not enter my rest. Since, therefore, it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly had good news preached to them failed to enter because of disobedience, he fixes again a certain day today, saying, through David, after so long a time, just as has been said before, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, he would not have spoken of another day after that. There remains, therefore, a Sabbath rest for the people of God. 
For the one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest, lest anyone fall through following the same example of disobedience. Father, I ask that you would take this passage of scripture, which has some mighty rich hope in it and open it to us. You be the teacher this morning. You shed light on this passage that you inspired in the beginning for our great faith's sake and for the salvation of the lost in this room. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Now, chapter 3, chapter before this one, ended with a warning that it was through unbelief that the Israelites did not get to enter the promised land of God's rest. See that in verse 19? You just jump up a verse. Verse 19 of chapter 3. And so we see that they were not able to enter, namely the promised land, the rest, because of unbelief. And last week, or two weeks ago, the point we drew out of that verse was that we believers should be so concerned that that not happen to us, that we not enter our rest, heaven, that we would be in each other's faces every day exhorting one another as long as it is called today, lest there be in any of us an evil, unbelieving heart dragging us away from faith in God. And we got that point not out of our own heads, but out of verses 12 and 13. Of chapter three, you see those they are the foundation of our small group vision at Bethlehem. Take care, brethren, lest there should be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart in falling away from the living God. But rather encourage one another day after day, as long as it is called today, lest any of you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. In other words, Since it was through unbelief that they did not enter. Unbelief is the great enemy of the Christian life. And unbelief is not automatic. I mean, belief is not automatic and therefore you've got to exhort one another every day. Now I ask you, are you in a web of relationships where that happens? If you're not, you're taking your soul at great risk. Because verse 13 is not written in vain. The Bible doesn't give superfluous counsel. It gives urgent counsel. Exhort one another every day. Many of you are so isolated in your Christian life. If you come every Sunday, this is about all you get by way of somebody urging you, exhorting you, pleading with you. Keep your faith strong. That's got to happen every day, this verse says. And so small groups at Bethlehem are not... Fun and games. They are life and death. They are perseverance in faith, and faith is what heaven hangs on. Next week is an important week. We will try to find our ways into small groups. Now, chapter 4, verse 1, a new conclusion is drawn. It's not different, really, but it's slightly altered from verse 19. A conclusion from verse 19 Let's read verse 1. 
Therefore, now that's the word that tips you off that a conclusion is being drawn from the previous verse, verse 19 of chapter 3. Therefore, let us fear, lest while a promise remains of entering his rest. So stop there a minute. There is still a promise. The promised land was not the final resting place of the people of God. We'll hear more about that in a minute. It pointed beyond to a heavenly rest. So he's saying to them, a promise. He said it to his people. I say it to you this morning. A promise remains for a rest. There's a rest available to you. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, Jesus says, and I'll give you what? Rest. It's still there. He's holding out his hand. Now, keep reading. While a promise remains of entering his rest, lest any one of you should seem to have come short of it. So the conclusion that he draws from verse 19 is fear. Therefore, let us fear. And we should ask, fear what? Well, it says fear, lest anyone should seem to have come short of God's rest. That is, fear lest you even appear to be missing heaven. Because if you go on careless, out of faith, not trusting the promises of God, you will miss heaven. That's what verse 6 said of chapter 3, verse 14 of chapter 3, verse 19 of chapter 3. We'll see it in verse 2 in just a moment. But still we haven't answered the question. What do we fear? That was the consequence of not fearing. Fear lest something happen because you didn't fear. What are we to fear? And it's very plain what we're to fear. If you put verses 19 and verse 1 together. They were not able to enter God's rest because of unbelief. Therefore, fear that unbelief. That's what we're to fear. Fear unbelief. Fear not trusting God. Fear not trusting the promises. Fear being neglectful of the word of God and just blithely passing over it and not cultivating your strong confidence in it. Fear that. Now, let's confirm this. By looking at verse 2. Verse 2 begins with the opposite word from therefore. It begins with for or because, which means that not an inference is being drawn, but a reason is being given. What's the reason being given for fearing? Verse 1 says fear. Verse 2 says for, indeed, we have had good news preached to us, just as they also. But the word they heard did not profit them because it was not united by faith in those who heard. It's exactly the same argument as verse 19. You see that? Verse 19 said, because of unbelief, they could not enter the promised land of rest. Therefore, fear. And now it says in the connection between verse 1 and 2, fear because they heard the good news, just like you, and it was of no use to them. Why? No faith. Therefore, fear, no faith. Fear, no faith. Fear leading your life in a kind of, oh, I believed a long time ago. 
but not having strong confidence in the promises of God and the leadership of God today. Today, as long as it is called today, believe, trust the promises of God. You know, you might ask, I did, whoa, this is an amazing statement. Good news was preached to them just as to you? Or we have heard good news preached just as they also? Whoa, I thought the Old Testament was bad news and we got good news. I thought the Old Testament was law and we got gospel. Wrong. This is one of the clearest verses in the Bible that there's gospel in the Old Testament and there's gospel in the New Testament. And it's the same gospel, although the foundation, the massive foundation of the gospel had not yet been laid in Jesus Christ, crucified and risen. So what was the gospel in the Old Testament? I wonder if we had a little test this morning. What would you say was the gospel in the first five books of the Old Testament or any any of it? Well, let me read some gospel sentences from Mount Sinai. Let's just go right to the center of the law. If you have the impression that the law of God is not good news, listen to this word. It's Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7. It is the centerpiece of the law of God. And it goes like this. The Lord proclaimed his name. The Lord, the Lord, a God compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, Abounding in loving kindness and faithfulness, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity and transgression and sin. If that's not gospel, I don't have a clue what gospel is. A God of slowness to anger, a God overflowing like a Vesuvius of mercy and faithfulness, and a God who forgives not just sin, but sin and rebellion. And he uses the three biggest, ugliest words for sin in the Bible. This is gospel. The forgiveness of sins is at the center of the law. And it's gospel. So these people had heard the gospel. Not only had they heard a God who forgives sins mercifully and freely, but they had heard promises of rest. For example, in Numbers 14, 8 and 9, as they're ready to go in to the promised land, and these rascal ten no-good disbelieving spies say, we can't do it, there's tall people in there. And good old Joshua and Caleb, bless them, those boys over there named Joshua and Caleb, great names to name your kids. These two, these two, uh, uh, I'll call them scribes, these two spies came back and they said, God has said, it's our land, we can do it. There's a rest, there's milk, there's honey, it's ours if we'll believe God. So those were promises that they were laying hold on. But the mass, according to verse 2 here in our text, it did not meet with faith. And they fell in the wilderness, which is all symbolic of us falling in this world and not making it to heaven if we do not believe. So they had the good news. We've got the good news. They had no faith. 
they fell and he's pleading with his readers, fear that happening to you. Fear it. Now, um, what do you make of this, this, this fear? The main point of this text so far, verse 1, is fear unbelief. The last sentence of the paragraph that I read, verse 11, kind of like a sandwich. We've got a piece of bread at the beginning, a piece of bread at the end. Makes the same point with different language. Look at that. If you want to see it expressed differently than fear. Verse 11. Let us therefore. So he's drawing his big conclusion again. Let us therefore be diligent to enter the rest. Lest anyone fall through following the same example of disobedience. Like those Israelites. And in the middle, between those two verses, he unfolds the Israelite experience of failure and all the different ways that rest was being developed. So be diligent. Now, if you've been with me for the weeks we've been on Hebrews, and you're going to see it again and again, this book is relentless in calling us to a new kind of Christianity that many people live. Namely, it is a life of continuous vigilance. Remember chapter 2, verse 1. Pay attention to what you've heard. Chapter 2, verse 3, don't neglect your great salvation. Chapter 3, verse 1, consider Jesus. Chapter 3, verse 8, don't harden your hearts. Chapter 3, verse 12, take care against an unbelieving heart. Chapter 3, verse 14, exhort one another every day. And chapter 4, verse 1, fear unbelief. So the great lesson of this book and of this text is that the Christian life is a day-by-day Hour by hour, trust in the promises of God and fear of not trusting the promises of God. Because it is so dangerous not to trust the promises of God. Because it's not automatic. I think in, a, in, in much church life in America, there's this automatic Christianity syndrome. You do a thing at a certain age. Pray, walk an aisle sign a card, or whatever, you do a thing. And then the, the mindset is, it's automatic. It's automatic. This this gap, this next 50, 60, 40, 100 years, it's just automatic. And rest. This book is written to blow that to smithereens. Vigilance to remain faithful and bear witness to the reality of that wonderful moment when I knelt in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, by Ruth Piper's knees and said, Jesus, come into my heart. I'm a sinner. I need forgiveness. Amen. The only reason I validate that is because I'm standing here today believing if I were out rejecting the Lord and living like the devil, I'd put no stock in that little prayer whatsoever. Perseverance in faith validates our conversion. Conversion doesn't excuse a life of rebellion and sin. Now, here's the question that's facing us. Faced me, anyway. You mean, Piper, at this point in the text, that the Christian life, the ideal Christian life in this age is a life of constantly being afraid of being lost. So Christians should be constantly afraid of being lost. Is that what you're telling us? Cool. Neat life. 
constantly being afraid of being lost. Is that what you're saying? Well, now, before I answer that, I just want to make sure that you don't query John Piper about that, but the writer of this book about that. Okay? I'm just reading the book. Verse 1 says, therefore, fear. This is the book. And so let us tone down our cynicism just slightly and say, okay, John, we stand with you before the book. We hear the word, but we're, we're perplexed. Me too. Okay? That's all right. Be perplexed before the word. Then you humbly say, Lord Jesus, I need some instruction here. This doesn't sound like good Christianity to me to lead a daily life of constantly being afraid of being lost. So what do you mean? Therefore, let us fear. Now, the first way to answer that question is to go back to verse 15 of chapter 2 and remind ourselves of something glorious. Chapter 15 of verse, I mean, verse 15 of chapter 2, it says, Christ came and he died. Why? To deliver those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. Now let it, let this word be heard loud and clear, lest you walk out of here saying something wrong that I said. Loud and clear. Jesus Christ died to make you fearless before death and the devil and the city and the mission field and cancer. He died to make you fearless people. Most dangerous neighborhoods, fearless. The unreached peoples, fearless. Speaking to my friend on the sidewalk about Christ, fearless. How? Through promises. I'll help you. I'll strengthen you. Fear not. Neither be dismayed. I'll help you. I'll strengthen you. That's why I put my hands on Oscar at 7.20 before he got on the plane like 20 other people did. And I said, fear not. For I am with you. Be not dismayed. For I am your God. I'll help you. I'll strengthen you. It's an issue. Do you believe that promise? If you believe that promise, fear goes. And the one thing left to fear is not believing it. Does that make sense? There's one thing to fear in this world. Not believing the promises that make you fearless. Can you handle that? There is one thing to fear, not believing the promises that produce fearlessness. Got a lot of kids in the room. Hang on. The kids understand this well. So listen, punch them. Don't let them draw while I'm saying this, okay? Kids, you know what I'm talking about because you can remember some of you, it was just yesterday, some it was five or six or seven or eight years ago, the first time your mother or your father near the edge of the street said, don't you run out in that street. Firm, stern face, 
voice lower than usual, a scowl. Don't ever go out in the street without holding my hand. Reason is dangerous in the street. Cars go by 30, 40, 50 miles an hour. You're dead. They kill you on the street. You don't go into the street. I love you. Therefore, I teach you fear the street. Right? Fear the street. Now, I asked the kids in the room, and adults can remember this too probably. Did that ruin your days? All day long in the backyard, can't go to the street. Oh! The park is ruined, the backyard is ruined, the sidewalks are ruined, the beach is ruined because I can't go in the street. It didn't ruin your days. It didn't ruin anybody's days. You didn't lose any sleep over it. Mom and dad are wise. They're good. They love me. I don't need the street. I got a yard. I got a sidewalk. I got friends. Only a couple times it got in your face when the ball rolled in the street. <laughs> Suddenly. The memory. Ooh, this is a scary place. Be afraid. Don't go out there. Or a temptress, tempter on the other side. Come on over. I'm not supposed to. Oh, chicken. <laughs> Just run across. There's no cars coming. And then fear kicks in. It's dangerous out there. My mom and dad told me it's dangerous and I'm going to be afraid of that until they tell me otherwise. Or until I'm old enough to judge this thing for myself. It doesn't ruin your days, folks, to be told not to. Or to be told to fear unbelief. It doesn't ruin your, your days. You, uh, you get up in the morning. And if you're not trusting the promises of God, you remember this is a fearful thing. And you go to the word and you say, God, deliver me from fear and unbelief. And restore the joy of my salvation and feed me with your promises so that I recover strong confidence. And then in that confidence, you go and you lay down your life and you lead the most fearless life imaginable. So please, do not go out of here this morning say, saying, John Piper believes the normative Christian life is to constantly be afraid of being lost. And that's one miserable life. I'm saying... Would you enjoy the backyard of God's promises? Would you enjoy the sidewalks of God's promises? Now, mind you, there are some gangs on the sidewalk. And there are some uh, unreached peoples in the backyard. And there are all kinds of bugs and diseases crawling around off the street. Which you don't need to fear because you're not unbelieving, but believing. One more thing and we're, we're done. I need to do a little bit with verses 3 through 10. Now, these are the hard verses. These are complicated verses. But I think I can give you an outline at least. A very brief, quick closing outline so that you could spend, uh, if you're so inclined, and I hope many of you are, time meditating on these verses, which are the foundation now that there was revealed in the Old Testament a rest for the people of God. A rest to rest in, believe in, come to. So let me give you five uh, quick points of history that this writer refers to to develop the fact 
that there's a rest for the people of God. That's all he's trying to do in these complicated verses is to show you there's a rest for the people of God today. In his day, 2,000 years ago, and in our day, 1996. So, period number one is creation. Verse four. He has said somewhere. There weren't any verses and chapter divisions, by the way. He couldn't say Genesis 2-2. There was no Genesis 2, verse 2. The chapter divisions and verse divisions were added about 1,600 years later. At least the verse divisions were. He has said somewhere concerning the seventh day, God rested on the seventh day from all his works. So the point he's saying here is God has a rest. He's a restful God. He's, he's not a... A harried, busy, overworked God who's got no time for people. He's a restful God and you can come to me. All who are labored and heavy laden, I'll give you rest. So a rest was opened for the people of God when God finished his work and said, here I am resting. Number two, he says, in the wilderness wandering... The people rebelled and didn't enter their rest. See that in verse 5. He's quoting Psalm 95 now. Again in this passage, they shall not enter my rest. And so the picture here is of the promised land as um, the rest of God. And they were unbelieving and so they were not able to enter the rest. Which now raises the question, well, is there a rest for the people of God? Was it meant to be the promised land and all oh, they didn't enter the promised land and so it's all over? No. Number three, the time of Joshua. Verse eight. For if Joshua had given them rest, you see, eventually God let them in to the promised land through Joshua. Was that it? Was that the rest that God had promised? He says, no. If Joshua had given them rest... He would not have spoken of another day after that. And what he's referring to there is Psalm 95 in the time of David. When the writer, David, looks back and says they fell and didn't enter God's rest. But today he opens another rest. Look at verse seven. This is period number four. The time of David. He again fixes a certain day. Today, saying through David long uh, after so long a time, so that's about 300 years between Joshua and uh, David. After so long a time, just as has been said before today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, but rather enter into God's rest. There's one last period, namely the time of the writer when he was writing for the people. And he concludes in verse 9, there remains, therefore, a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Now, we are very distant from this man's way of reading the Bible. He is a rigorous, hard thinker about the flow of thought in the Old Testament. Most of us aren't anywhere near thinking about the Old Testament that hard and that deeply. That's why we stumble over how this is so complicated. But just get the conclusion. Today... There remains a rest for the people of God. And so I want to close by simply on behalf of God Almighty saying to everybody in this room, there remains for you a rest. And I hear somebody saying, no, 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 it isn't for me. It's for the people of God. 
Now, if God were here, which he is, what he would say, which he does, because I'm just going to read it out of his word, is this. You are a part of the people of God if you believe. Look at verse 3. Verse 3 says, We who have believed enter that rest. So I want to say with all the authority of the word of God, do not sit there this morning saying the promise of verse 9, there remains a heavenly rest for the people of God, and that's not me. Don't say that. Rather say, you mean if I believe what you've been saying this morning, If I believe that Christ came into the world to die for sinners, that Christ rose again, that God is a merciful God, a forgiving God, a God who lavishes his love on those who believe. If I believe that and bank my hope on his promises, I'm part of the people of God. The answer of God is you indeed are. And therefore you have a rest. And so I welcome you to believe. I urge you to believe.